Playing with Hire, the HR podcast which works well. Presented by Nick Coffer with Alice Bromwich. Yes, Playing with Hire, which I want to say is the HR podcast. But when you look at the areas we're going to cover, I think it's going to be much more than that. This is a series about managing people and ensuring that they're happy, safe and motivated. But this goes well beyond simple workplace policies. This is about a a holistic approach which puts people and their whole well-being first and not just at work. Alice Bromwich is my co-presenter. Alice set up Peony and Magnolia after years working at senior management level in blue chip companies. Nice to have you along, Alice. Thank you, Nick. Uh, Peony and Magnolia, it's your business. Uh, in your own words when we first met I remember you said Nick I am not a florist I think that was your very first sentence tell us a little bit about your story and about your business Uh, yes I probably did say that Nick I run a HR consultancy Um, the reason why I didn't want to call it Alice's HR was because I do things maybe slightly differently uh, to other HR professionals and I mean that in the sense that I'm I am a professional. I have um, a HR business degree. I've got a master's, CIPD qualified. I've got many years of experience of working with people, um, with different companies, different sizes of companies. But I do pull all of this together, but I seem to be able to do this in a slightly different way to maybe some of my other HR professionals. I can't really explain why, um, but it's it's me behind the business and what I deliver um, seems to work well with my, with my clients. I've got to know you quite well in, in recent weeks, and I'm hoping that what we're going to bring out in, in these episodes is the Alice paradox, because on the one hand, I can see that you are quite conventional in the way you act as an HR professional. You're quite conventional in your thinking as well. But then you can be quite maverick and you can go rogue as well. Is that a part of what you're about? Yeah, I think that's a fair summary, Nick. I think that, um, not I think, I know, I have been described as being fair but firm in the past. Um, I equally have been told that um, I'm very forgiving, will take an awful lot, but when you know you've crossed the line, you get a glare from me. And my friends, family and anyone who's worked with me will have experienced a glare at some point. And I think that that for myself is... um, I try and listen. That's my first point is I try and listen to people, try and work out whatever their sort of HR issue or problem may be. Um, But ultimately, there is employment law in place. There are rules and regulations and policies and procedures. And that's where I then bring that all in. Two minutes in, I've already made a note on my bit of paper, avoid the glare. If we can get through the next uh, few episodes without happening, I will be very happy. Uh, in future episodes, we'll look at the impact of domestic abuse in the workplace. So we'll explore how external life events uh, can impact on employees and how business owners and managers can mitigate their impact. We'll take an in-depth look at inclusion. Uh, but first in this episode, we'll Look, page one, line one, Alice, uh, the nuts and bolts of HR. We had a lot of fun thinking of a title for this series. And and then we realised that many of them, well, reflected the fact that HR people are at best misunderstood and at worst, well, basically really unpopular. Why is that? I think, again, that is a fair summary. I think it is very much based on someone's personal experience. So, you know, we've all worked uh, in a company where we may see HR as being, you know, the gatekeepers. It's very transactional. I mean, God, the amount of times I've been asked, how many holiday days have I got left? I mean, you know, we do more than that in HR than, than manage holiday days. But I think we've also 
all experienced somewhere along our careers a brilliant HR team and a not so brilliant HR team. So yes, and it can be a pretty dull subject for some, you know, not for me, I would class myself as a bit of a HR geek. I'm passionate about talking about people. I'm not somebody who will say I'm a people person, that's why I went into HR. I won't say that. I will say that actually people fascinate me and in every area of business you need somebody who is an expert in sales, you need somebody who's an expert in accounting. I'm an expert in people. So let's start at the, the very beginning then. Uh, how many holidays? No, 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 <laughs> let's start at the very beginning. People, managing them, surely it's easy enough. Well, you could say that, Nick, but actually um, it is a bit more difficult than that. I think that there are lots of people get put into management positions that don't have the support or the experience to manage people effectively. I think there are or some... the skills and oh, required talent. Yeah, there are some managers who it it's more natural to and actually they fall into managing the everyday very well. What's where HR comes into or managing people comes into their own is when we talk around giving direction, leading, um, managing difficult situations. Um, we, If you are to leave your managers without that training and development, you're opening your business up to problems. And we'll talk at length about these problems through the course of this series. But just as a starting point, what kind of problems can that be beyond the obvious of having disgruntled employees? I think some of it's low lying, if I'm honest. I think the low lying issues that are every day there, the treating team members in different ways, the um, comments which may seem as, you know, by the way comments when actually have an impact on somebody. Um, just poor management, micromanagement. I mean, we see this all the time. Um, that then, it's all the underlying and that underlying then grows and grows and grows until you get the situation where you've got a grievance against a manager. So, um, yeah, that I mean, it is about the language. It's about, you know, if you are a toxic manager, the impact and the ripple effect that has not just on your team, but maybe the wider team around you, you know, it can become very complex. If you, as a more senior manager or as a leader, doesn't manage this effectively. It's part of the issue that you face as an HR professional that businesses underestimate the importance of managing their employees properly and equally, if not more importantly, the cost. So you'll, you'll say, okay, I'm going to take someone and I'm going to take on uh, a PA and that salary will be a part-time salary of 20 grand a year plus my insurance, my national insurance contributions. But actually the true cost of taking them on, keeping them there, retaining them and ensuring that they're well and happy is considerably more. Do, do small and medium-sized uh, enterprises generally underestimate what they're going to have to spend to be good employers? Yes, I think they do. And, and you know, SMEs, it's very, very difficult because every headcount needs to count. Every role you're adding into the business needs to have an impact. And, Yes, like you say, it's not just the salary, it's the on-cost. Um, actually, you know, I think it's the, 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 roughly, if, you, if you've got about an £18,000 salary a year, actually that costs the business nearly £35,000 a year in all the additional on-costs. Now, that's got to be sustained year on year. And yeah, actually do people consider not just the financial cost, but the actual 
investment costs that they need to put into somebody. Um, so if you employ somebody, have you done it in the right way? Have you set up your functions um, around it to support them? You know, yeah, people don't consider potentially um, what an investment people are. And do they actually understand where HR starts? Where does your liability towards an employee start? Is it the moment at which they walk through your front door or is it more likely the moment that they see you uh, advertise a job or indeed even well before that? Yes, and it is well before that. So um, in terms of even advertising for a role, um, that has to um, meet the advertising standards. It has to be within line with the employment law practices. You know, we do still see adverts which um, have discrimination in them. So, you know, somebody who applies for a role and doesn't get selected or shortlisted can bring a claim against a company that they've never even worked for, be part of that recruitment process. Does that happen? Yes, it does. Is happen. that because people are litigative and they, they like a bit of a ruck? No, I think genuinely some... I mean, look, there's two camps, isn't there? There are those which um, potentially might look out for these types of job adverts and there are those which actually genuinely may not have been selected um, or for a role based on discrimination, you know, based on race, based on their age, depending on what they might put on their CV. So actually, yeah, there are cases where um, potential future employers can have cases brought against them in the recruitment process. And part of what we'll look at over this series uh, is this question of what's the worst case scenario, because actually a lot of businesses underestimate how bad it can get for them uh, for actions that perhaps they hadn't previously thought could cause them problems. Yes. And, uh, and you know, again, when you offer somebody a role, um, you're making them a verbal offer. You know, there are laws in place that means that you have to put that into written particulars. That has to be by a certain point in time. Actually, if you employ people without a full contract, okay, it's okay, but then you've got possibly fallout further down the line. Um, if you're not paying pensions correctly or if you're not paying holiday correctly, it continues and continues. I think we need to avoid making this a sort of 101 of HR because let's be honest, we can't cram it all into the next few minutes. However, listening to this podcast are going to be people who perhaps are at the early stages of their business, who, who do have a small business, who are thinking of growing even in the current context. What should they be doing? What is the bare minimum beyond the fact that, of course, you believe they should get an HR professional and we know that. What is the bare minimum they should be doing right now? Okay, so I think if we were going to go back to what the nuts and bolts of HR are within a small business, they are the contractual obligations. So you need to ensure that you understand your employment contracts and that you are actually fulfilling those contracts because ultimately your contractual obligation between employer and employee is fundamentally the thing that will be challenged. So if you don't provide the right notice, if you don't pay, you know, if we talk about the negatives, this is when the contract comes into place. So if you're a small business, that might be a good starting point if you are worried about either as you're growing or what to, if you just need to have a stop and a health check, an MOT, I mean, how many companies have an audit every year or have to do their accounts? How many companies actually stop and do a HR audit every year? How many do? Probably not enough, Nick, <laughs> um, to say, actually, there's been a change in how we pay holiday. Have we put that into place? You know, 
even if they don't have the expertise in the business, at that point, invest in once a year, someone just to give you a rubber stamp for the next year. You know, we're not asking every company to have every policy under the sun in place, but we're asking them to fundamentally employ people in the right way. But a company could, you know, there's the internet, which is fairly rife with information. Uh, They could buy an off-the-shelf HR package. They could get away without using an HR specialist. At what point do they need that level of expertise? And you're absolutely right, you can. And and many SMEs will have got their contracts originally from uh, their legal support or their accounting support. And you know, they've possibly have got a handbook that's they've taken from online, which is absolutely fine. Um, but at what time does somebody then bring in a specialist? And I think that really, for me, is when a business feels starting to feel the growing pains. So, you know, it ca- doesn't matter what size of the business it is. If you're starting to feel the strain of something, that suggests to me that that's where a HR specialist comes in. However, saying that, there are some bold and brave founders of businesses that invest in HR right from the start. Before they've even employed people, they are somebody like myself, and I've worked with clients like this right from the start to set the strategy, to set the foundations, and then we know we're doing it right. So when we hit a crisis point or a growing pains, we've actually got some things in place already to help us support them. Because if you get to the point where the problems have already set in, unravelling it can be very tricky. And I use the phrase unravelling because I've got in my mind the, the image of like a, a, a ball of wool, you know, or, or, or a plate of spaghetti, more to the point, unlike my food, um, where actually disentangling the threads, disentangling uh, the, the pasta, for want of a better phrase, is really, really hard. And you can only do it one thread at a time. And that's, of course, where you get called in to fight fires. But by that point, it's often too late. Yes, it can be. And it depends what the topic is that we're unravelling. So, you know, if it's a workplace grievance or whistleblowing claim, then yeah, actually probably too late to try and we then have to put steps or solutions into place to stop those things happening again in the future. If you're talking around a point where you have employed people on a particular set of terms and conditions, then that can be managed through a consultation. So we can change how that's operated. But again, you're untangling something that may not need to have been in there in the first place. And I guess by definition, you're saying that in the first instance, it needn't be complicated. There's ACAS, there's the codes of practice. You follow those. You're going to be a long way along the line to getting it right just by not reinventing that HR wheel. Absolutely. And and there are some SMEs that I will work with that don't have their own policies in place. And that's absolutely fine. They haven't needed them or they haven't got to the point where they've invested in them. So we follow the ACAS code of practices, a code of conduct and practices. And actually, we do that anyway, because um, if we do get to a point where, you know, you've been through all the policies, you've, I don't know, you may have dismissed somebody, then ACAS will step in as conciliation before it goes to an employment tribunal. So, yeah, that's a really good starting point for anybody really to turn to, employee or employer. And you mentioned their grievances. It's pretty much the first time it's come up uh, in this episode today. All the policies in the world and all the preparation in the world cannot prevent grievances, whether they are uh, well-founded or whether they're malicious. Aren't you just better off as an employer saving your money, putting it into a legal fund, uh, putting it into a bit of money that you can use to bring someone like you in to to fight fire? Uh, Aren't you better off putting your money there because no one can avoid grievances? Well, you see, grievances are obviously seen as a negative 
most of the time. And if I'm honest, there are usually uh, conflict or hostility around a grievance. However, that's when we get to the formal point of it. And you're absolutely right. Some people do have a pot of money to settle those things out of the business. However, I do feel that lots of the grievances that I investigate could have been resolved earlier, could have been resolved through communication, could have been resolved through mediation or facilitation between whoever, you know, the conflict is is in place. I do also think that people bringing grievances in an informal way or, or raising them isn't such a bad thing because I think what it's doing is saying, okay, this is happening. I'm not so sure about this. And if that if you're in an environment where they're listened to and not seen as, oh, someone's moaning again, actually that can be used as continuous improvement. So I think if you're standing still too long, then that's not so good. I think actually having people bringing their voice to the party is also quite a positive thing. And it's part of being a good business, knowing that you've got those lines of communications, those 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 avenues available to your people, to your employees, to actually start those conversations. Yeah, so actually it's 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 a good point because, you know, somebody can bring that low lying grievance to you, but if nothing gets done around it, then actually how many times do you trust that, you know, how many times do you go to somebody in HR and say, this is happening, I want to just raise it to your attention and nothing gets done? How many times do you do that before it then becomes something which you've got an issue with? For more information about the HR services offered by Peony and Magnolia, head over to peonyandmagnolia.com. There, you can join the mailing list so you can receive the latest thoughts and advice from Alice directly into your mailbox. So how good is an HR person like you? And I'll explain what I mean by that. Can you sort it all out? Are you there with a magic wand that you have the, you know, the, the the golden bullet, as it were, to resolve all problems? Or is it actually a little bit more subtle than that? Are you there to, to give advice, to, to, to guide, to, to steer? How good can you be? Well, it also depends on what type of HR person you are, because I would say I'm quite commercially driven. So when I offer advice and it really does depend on the, the the client you're working with or the the company you're working in but when you offer advice i often offer it on a risk level so yes you can take this but this is higher risk or you can do this and and that you will hear from hr professionals we offer advice we are an advisory service for the business to take forward now i agree and disagree because that's fundamentally what we do a lot of But HR in the right environment can have a very loud voice to actually influence those areas. So I can provide the advice, but I and I can say these are the different risks and I can say to the business, you know, collectively, let's make a commercial decision on this. But that doesn't happen all the time. And there has to be some significant buy-in because ultimately, if you're going into a business, particularly one run by entrepreneurs or perhaps a family where there's ingrained culture and you're going in there going, you need to invest in this. You must come up against people saying, what do you know about my business? Yeah. And actually, the first point, as an independent, as a consultant, and that is also the bonus of being independent, is that you can go in and you listen. So I don't really care if it's a family business that's been running that way for however many years. I've actually asked CEOs of business, 
what do you want to be remembered for? And I'm not, and I'm not sure they were expecting those questions some of the time. But um, And it's not to be aggressive or assertive. It's just saying, well, this is all lovely, but why? You know, so actually, yes, you're right. I mean, why invest in why invest in somebody like me when if there's resistance? Well, I'd suggest that's exactly where you need to invest in someone like me to come in and ask the questions. It's a paradoxical job, though, isn't it, HR? Because on the one hand, I'm sure you love being at the sharp end. I'm sure you love fighting fire. I would go as far as say you probably quite enjoy firing people, although I know there's the human aspect to which you're undoubtedly very sensitive. But the, the process, the, the, the HR geek in you must enjoy, in inverted commas, that process. So you're there at the sharp end. And yet, at the same time, you really should be there well before that to make sure that it's all sorted and doesn't get to that point. So you are kind of juggling both strands, aren't you? Yes. And when people ask me, well, what do you do? You know, what do you do? What do I do? And that's, you know, I put the foundations or good foundations of HR practices into place for SMEs. And I like working with SMEs because they actually are not always that small, right? You can, <laughs> And it's usually around a scale up or like I say, the growth area problem, the something where there's not quite working in the way it used to. So I enjoy working with those types of people, unpicking what those problems are, or if there aren't problems, getting the foundations in place beforehand. Equally, you're right. I have tended to, and I'm not quite sure how I've ended up in this situation, but I am particularly good at picking, they call them my parachute projects. And what I mean by that is I'm I'm brought in, I'm asked to resolve something quite complex and I come back out again. Alice will sort it. Yeah. Um, and hopefully with compassion. But it means that I, when we go back to the firm and fair, is I can do that where sometimes other HR people can't that you can't you haven't got the breadth but whose side are you on do you know I don't and think are you lost for words for the first time since, I, since, <laughs> since you've met me since I met you I don't think I'm on because you're, you're I'd explain you're being paid by the business your your retainer depends on the business owners or the board or whoever it is the directors paying you to be there so you kind of have a vested interest in not annoying them but equally you're there to ensure that their staff are looked after and that their well-being is at the absolute core of the company's policy so who wins and that's a really interesting question because you do hear people say well, what's the point of doing this the outcome's there already we know what's going to happen you're going to take management side yes i do get paid by businesses businesses who have or may not be able to manage what their current situation is if it's a conflict you know not not talking about those that invest <laughs> that's a different part but actually i'm there to ensure fairness and my role is to ensure that whatever is happening is in line with employment law now there are some leaders who may not like my decision. Who may not be particularly interested in law full stop. Exactly. But that's where I go back to saying to them about, well, this is my recommendation. What you do with that recommendation is your risk. So you can, you, if, you've, if you've invested in asking me to investigate a situation and you don't like the outcome that I have put down, 
then that is on your business head to deal with. But I've put it in writing. Yes. And that isn't my get out of jail card free. That is me taking my professional advice and saying to you, this is a recommendation or highlighting to you the risk. Now that can be equally in support of the employee. It doesn't, my recommendations don't always fall in favour of management because I don't look at it from that point because I'm an independent. When I'm sat in a business, equally, I've had situations where I've had a team of people who might have heard grievances, but ultimately if the appeal comes to me, I still have to take that independent approach in looking at what we have in front of us. And a lot of that then is governed by law. And is there a benefit therefore of having someone from the outside on that panel rather than someone on the inside who may well have seen the genesis of the problem and, and seen it all the way through? Yes, because also you don't have the bias. So I often say, I, and, and this is relevant to what we're discussing now, I don't need to know what happened five years ago between X, Y, Z. If there's a grievance or a dis if there's a disciplinary which is on file, which is relevant and still live, I will consider it. But other than that, I want to look with unbiased, uninfluenced eyes at the case that we have in front of us. I had a, a final question for you. Okay. And it was going to Already. be well, it, was, it was going to be along the lines of yeah, having heard you talk as well here, that it seems that people like myself um actually risk underestimating the cost of properly managing people. And having now done this episode, I'm going to change that episode slightly and say that we underestimate the risk of not properly managing people. Is that the heart of what you do? Yes. Um, I manage risk. and that's, But I manage ultimately, um, yes, you're right. The, the people only understand the value that HR add when they've been stung. But there are, of course, some leaders who understand it much earlier on, but most will only understand it when they're being faced with something that's going to cost the business money. Are you like when we have an electric appliance that that breaks after, you know, two years and one month, one month after its warranty, and we wish we'd taken out the extended warranty? Are you basically business's extended warranty? Yeah. Yes. And actually, if they'd like to retain me as an extended warranty, then I'm there on call for them. And actually, that's how some some clients do work with me. They call on me when they need me. Yeah, that the, does work. The analogy wasn't so silly because you talk about managing risk. That is basic. That is the basic premise of insurance. You, you, you are, in effect, the insurance policy of the business. When it comes to managing people, yes. Very, very interesting, Alice. Um, we're going to cover a lot uh, in the next few episodes. We're going to look at domestic abuse, the impact on uh, employees and indeed on employers and how employers can mitigate that risk. We'll look at inclusion, which is a, a very complex question. And also um, look at life events. How do life events impact on the life cycle of an employee? And what can employers do to make sure that they uh, limit the impact of that on uh, on their workforce? Alice, where can we find you when you're not doing podcasts? You can find me on my website, which is peonyandmagnolia.com. 
you can find me on LinkedIn, quite vocal there, and you can email me. I'm always happy for an email. It's alice at peonymagnolia.com. Very unlike you to be uh, vocal, Alice. <laughs> uh, don't forget, wherever you are listening to this podcast, whether it's uh, on Apple, Spotify, Acast, uh, well, basically wherever you normally consume your podcast, click on follow because that means that you'll be updated uh, on all future episodes of, uh, of this series and there will be more. Uh, you get a nice little notification. It means you can uh, enjoy it on your way to work or however you normally enjoy your podcast domestic abuse a very very difficult topic which alice is going to talk about uh, in a very personal way as well that'll be the next episode Uh, alice thanks for your time on episode one thanks nick